0: nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the Outer Limits.
1: Only via continuing to probe every nook and cranny of the universe that is acceptable to us will we truly build a useful appreciation of our own place in the cosmos. That's a quote from U.S. Canadian theoretical physicist Lawrence Maxwell Krauss. Ever wonder? Back in middle school, a teacher of mine would often take a break from the day's assignments and ask, do you ever wonder? The class would then discuss whatever existential quandary that was on his mind that day. After our discussion, he would find a way to tie it into the day's curriculum and we would resume the lesson which I always thought was pretty cool. To this day, every now and then, I'll turn to a nearby friend or coworker and simply ask, you ever wonder? With the recent successful landing of NASA's Perseverance Mars Rover, I began to wonder. Sure, we're bound to discover new and exciting things as we venture further and further into outer space. One day, we'll turn over a rock or enter a cave, and there will be life. But what if that life turns out to be hostile, be it deliberately or defensively? In that case, you'd think a civilization advanced enough for space travel would have a contingency plan of some sort. But we've seen instances on our own planet where technological superiority doesn't necessarily guarantee success. Plus, how can one really anticipate what lies out there beneath every nook and cranny of the cosmos? I'm not even talking about humanoid life forms. There could be bacteria out there strong enough to survive any decontamination process and make its way back to Earth. How would humanity handle that scenario? It's a terrifying thought, but an apt one nonetheless. Tonight we're going to meet the crew of the Project Adonis Space Laboratory. As the control voice will tell us, they are dedicated to removing the unknown of space for future space travelers. These brave men are about to encounter something never before seen in outer space. What exactly it is they discovered, we'll find out shortly. I will be spoiling tonight's episode, so if you haven't seen it, you can find it on Blu-ray through the good folks at Kino Lorber, and over on the Roku channel by simply searching The Outer Limits. Now let's sit quietly while Big Parent's control voice brings us into tonight's episode, Specimen Unknown.
0: For centuries, man has looked to the skies and sought to uncover the mystery of the universe. The telescope brought into focus the craters on the moon and the canals on Mars. But it was limited, and man's insistent hunger for knowledge and experience would not be satisfied until he broke the massive chains of gravity and set foot himself on a planet other than his own. Project Mercury was his first venture into space, a testament to his technical ingenuity and courage. A green light to a hundred other projects which would take him still further. This is Project Adonis, a laboratory orbiting a 1,000 miles above the Earth, a tiny, far-flung world connected only by radio and memory and inhabited by a handful of men dedicated to removing the unknown for future space travelers. At 10 minutes after 6, on January 8th, Lieutenant Rupert Howard stumbled upon something clinging to the wall of the space lock that appeared alive. He called them space barnacles for temporary identification. They were not.
1: Written by Stephen Lord with additional material by Joseph Stefano. Prologue by Leslie Stevens. Directed by Gerd Oswald. Assistant director Lee Katzen. Prologue directed by Robert Justman. Director of Photography. Conrad Hall. This episode aired for the first time on Monday, the 24th of February, 1964. You may have noticed the list of credits is a bit longer this time around. That's because this episode, as Leslie Stevens described it, was just a disaster. Adding, we got it together out of blind hope, really. Director Kurt Oswald himself said the story was very weak and there wasn't much he could do. When the episode was turned in, it was too short and couldn't be used, which led to Joseph Stefano receiving a very angry phone call from Leslie Stevens, which led to Stevens taking over. In a rush to extend the show to a proper runtime, Stevens wrote an extended control voice speech as well as a prologue that needed to be filmed in a hurry. That task would fall on the shoulders of Robert Justman, the longtime assistant director would finally get to make his directorial debut, if only for one sequence. In the end, a few more tweaks would have to be made in order to get the show to its required length, but they pulled it off, and this is the end result. We open on an exterior shot of the Project Adonis space station, which as it turns out, is a leftover prop from the 1959 television series, Men Into Space. This isn't the only time the episode will borrow from that television series first glance of the space station, I was reminded of the space station from one of my favorite Doctor Who stories, The Ark in Space. But that wouldn't come for another 11 years. We stay on this shot of the space station for 16 seconds, which was one solution for padding out the episode's runtime. We'll get a few more exterior shots of the space station throughout, to add on a few more precious seconds. We also get a shot of an intercom, as a disembodied voice assigns personnel to different regions of the station. It's inconsequential to the plot, just another reason to add another insert shot for more padding. Fun fact, the voice on the intercom is that of Robert Johnson, the voice of all disembodied voices on the outer limits. Lieutenant Rupert Howard is examining the space barnacles he just discovered on the outside of the space lock. He sets one in an incubator, while two more sit on a tray nearby. The phone beeps and Howard answers.
0: Hello, Lieutenant Howard speaking. Well, I can't be certain yet, uh, Major Dowling, but it's looking more and more like some kind of a dormant spore. I've probably been uh, floating around in space for a million years or so.
2: Finally found a home.
0: Well, I should know more later on. I've got uh, one in the incubator, and I'm about to uh,
2: make a slight study on the others. No, I haven't
0: named it yet. (laughs) Something Greek, or maybe I'll just call it Miss Adonis. Right, right.
1: While Howard is on the phone, a small stem rises from the quote-unquote space barnacle that was placed in the incubator. It's later, and Howard is continuing his analysis of the two specimens. Unbeknownst to him, the stem that rose in the incubator has now sprouted leaves. He turns and discovers that this space barnacle has grown into a flower. He removes it from the incubator and sets it on the table, but suddenly the flower shoots spores everywhere. Howard begins to clean them up, but starts coughing. Realizing the danger of the situation, he runs to grab the flower, but it shoots white vapor into his face. Rupert falls to the ground and looks around in confusion. He musters up the strength he has left and grabs the flower, then stumbles his way to the outside disposal chute. He flings the flower down the chute and closes the hatch. He turns and realizes that there are still two more specimens at his workstation. Howard gathers his remaining strength and makes his way to the table, but he is simply too weak. He reaches for the specimens, but collapses. I really liked the tension in this sequence. One of my favorite Dominic Fontieri cues is used as the stem slowly rises, and actor Dabney Coleman's performance was especially good. He was uncredited in this episode, but Coleman would go on to become a very prolific actor, having 177 credits to his name, and appearing as recently as 2019 in an episode of NCIS. This next sequence was supposed to be the start of the episode, which I think would have been great. Imagine coming in on this somber scene, not knowing anything about the episode. It sets such a great tone, and it's my favorite scene of the episode. We're in an airlock where the crew of the station are holding a funeral service for Lt. Howard. After a short prayer, his body is released, and we watch it drift off into the deep deep heavens and the airlock is shut. The crew make their way back to their workstations when one of them discovers a small mushroom-like growth near the airlock. He pries it off and hands it to his crewmate, who then brings it to Captain Mike Dowling, who happens to be bathing in artificial sunlight. Dowling says, that's the third one, isn't it? And places it inside a can marked specimen 3. He kicks his feet onto the desk and resumes his artificial sunbathing. We see the specimen container illuminated by the sunlight. And a small stem begins to rise from it. It's later, and the crew are in Dowling's lab.
0: Now I put the sun lamp on the other two spores, exactly the same thing happened. They seemed to grow right in front of me. It must be the combination of the station's synthetic Earth's atmosphere and the sun lamp. It makes sense. Oh, I'm not much on botany, Major. Howard's theory was that they are some sort of dormant spore, just probably floating around in space for millions of years. Well, we'll let the lab boys try to figure it out. They know all the answers. Boys,
2: try to get space project communications, will you? Yes, sir. All right.
0: Uh, Major, I don't want to press the issue, but you know how closely together Howard and I have been working on cosmic radiation research? Now, I'd like to be allowed to stay up here and finish the work. The answer is no, Mike. Emphatically, no. Look. The Human Factor boys have got it all worked out. Three months up here, six below. What if I could find out what killed him?
2: That's problem number one for the new crew, not our. Major Benedict, I've got Space Project Communications. Colonel McWilliams is on. Come on, you can say a few provocative words to your wife.
1: Did you catch the reference to the Human Factor boys? I wonder if Major Benedict caught wind of the tale of Major Brothers back on Earth. If Major Benedict looks familiar, that's because he's played by actor Russell Johnson. Who most folks may remember as The Professor from Gilligan's Island, but before that he was known for his work in westerns such as Black Saddle, Lawman, Wagon Trail, and The Dakotas just to name a few. In addition to his western repertoire, he was also in a number of science fiction films such as Attack of the Crab Monsters, It Came from Outer Space, The Space Children, and This Island Earth. Fans of The Twilight Zone will recognize him from his role as professor Menian in the season 1 episode, Execution, and as Pete Corrigan in the season 2 episode, Back There. I wish he would have come back for more episodes, he's really good in his role here. The man exudes confidence and has more presence than anyone else in my opinion. I was hoping his character would take the lead, but it is what it is. Benedict and Dowling leave the room, and we see the slightest bit of white vapor emit from the specimen container, which happens to be near a caged rabbit. Major Benedict is on the line with Colonel McWilliams of the United States Department of Space Travel, Communications Division, back on Earth. He says they buried Lieutenant Howard, and they are doing all right. He informs the colonel that Captain Dowling is requesting to remain on the space station after the relief team arrives. At that moment, a woman walks in carrying a notepad. Her name tag reads, Dowling.
2: Uh, Put Dowling on. I think you know what to say, Janet. This is Captain Dowling.
0: Well, hi. This is Captain Dowling's wife. Janet, how are you? I'm fine. Mike, I've missed you. Well, I've missed you too, Janet, but...
2: Janet, you better hurry on down Mike, she's been sitting on the edge of her oscilloscope for days now. Put Major Benedict back on. Yes sir.
1: The woman you just heard was Janet Dowling and she's played by actress Gail Kobe, who was very busy in the 1950s and 60s, appearing in television episodes of Dr. Kildare, Gunsmoke, The Felony Squad, and The Fugitive, just to name a few. In addition to those, She made three stops in the Twilight Zone. Her first as Sally in the season one episode, A World of Difference. Her second as Jessica Connolly in the season four episode, In His Image. And finally, as Leah Maitland in the season five episode, The Self Improvement of Salvador Ross, which also features Outer Limits alumni Don Gordon. Aside from her prolific acting career, Kobe also worked as a producer starting as associate producer on the return to Peyton Place, leading up to executive producer of Guiding Light from 1982 to 1987. Gail Colby will return to the Outer Limits in the season 2 episode, Keeper of the Purple Twilight. Here, she isn't given a title or ranking. She's just Mike's wife, who happens to work at the base. Which is a bummer, considering where the episode goes from here, it wouldn't have hurt to give her a rank. Then again, I need to remember that I'm watching 60s television. In 2021, Benedict tells the colonel that he will have a full report of the incident for the Pentagon, but will leave the cause of death up to McWilliams. They end the call, and McWilliams turns to Chief Surgeon Major Jennings. Will you
2: stop looking at me like that, Nathan? Like what? Look, I I had a decision to make, and I made it. All these people here, they're my responsibility. As project officer, I have to consider the whole picture. Howard's body had just as thorough an autopsy up there as we could have performed down here. Lieutenant Halper's a fine physician, you know that.
0: As I said, Max, sometimes one man can miss a small detail. A team of men might have learned more. As chief surgeon of this project, my, uh, my advice
2: was to bring Howard's body down here. But what about the calculated risk involved? You said it yourself. As a matter of record, I said it
0: might not have been the cosmic radiation experiments... that destroyed the hemoglobin in Howard's blood. It might have been some alien virus floating around up there. Something we know nothing about.
2: And you also admitted that such a virus could be contagious. And that our bodies probably have no immunity built up to fight it. Could I risk exposing this whole base to something that kills a man... in a matter of a few hours without warning? No. Not knowing the cause of Howard's death, I just couldn't chance bringing him back.
1: We're back on the space station where the crew are standing over the lifeless body of the caged rabbit. The hemoglobin in its blood has been destroyed just like Lieutenant Howard. Lieutenant Gavin informs the crew that the second team has arrived on the space station and that they have been relieved and can return to Earth. The men place the specimens into transport containers and make their way to the shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft is in flight when the attitude stabilizer malfunctions, causing the shuttle to shake violently. We see the specimen containers fall over and open, unbeknownst to the crew. The automatic attitude control system must be repaired from the outside. Captain Dowling suits up and heads out to the hatch of the shuttlecraft. We get another piece of footage borrowed from *Men Into Space. That's meant to be Captain Dowling outside working on the shuttlecraft. I guess every second counts. Back in the shuttlecraft, Lieutenants Gavin and Halper aren't feeling too well. That's because while Major Benedict was observing Dowling repair the servos outside, one of the specimens sprayed white vapor into the cockpit. Major Benedict notes the men's sluggish behavior and instructs them to put their helmets on. When Captain Dowling returns, everyone is weakened or passed out. Major Benedict struggles with his words, but he tells Dowling to inform the base. Suddenly, spores start flying all over the place. Dowling and Benedict turn to discover all three specimens outside their containers, shooting spores and white vapor. Dowling grabs the specimens and throws them into the next compartment and shuts the door. Major Benedict runs to the control panel and calls back to base. This next clip is one of my favorite performances of the episode. Listen to Russell Johnson's tone grow more and more dire as his energy depletes.
0: That's the situation. These plants, the gas, they release. Poisonous. It stores hemoglobin in the blood. Gavin almost out. Helper, already unconscious. Both turning like Howard and the rabbit. I'm beginning to feel weaker. What about Dowling? Dowling was outside of craft, not exposed to gases as much as we were. Aft compartment overrun with the plants. They fire spores, hundreds at a time. They grow on anything. Even penetrate metal with their stems. It's, it's a malignant thing. Don't let us land. Contamination. Destruct us.
2: Destruct. Major! Major Benedict!
1: Major Benedict passes out, leaving Captain Dowling the only thing keeping the shuttlecraft in safe Earth orbit. Captain Dowling is played by actor Richard Jekyll. He was one of Hollywood's most prolific supporting stars. He was discovered by a casting director while working as a mailboy and was cast in a key part in the 1943 war epic Guadalcanal Diary. His stocky build and service in the Navy earned him numerous tough guy roles, appearing in 1949's Sands of Iwo Jima, where he co-starred alongside John Wayne and The Dirty Dozen in 1967. In 1971, he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. In the film, sometimes a great notion. He passed away in 1997 at the age of 70. Here, he isn't so much of a tough guy, more a noble one whose sense of duty really shines through, which I'm sure was effortless given his military service. Though he isn't the lead very long, his performance was good enough to connect with me as if he'd been the lead the entire episode. Back on Earth, Colonel McWilliams and Major Jennings aren't sure what to do. If Captain Dowling passes out, the shuttlecraft will crash land on Earth, releasing the deadly spores. There are two options. Instruct the shuttlecraft to land and risk contaminating the population, or send a missile to destroy the shuttlecraft. In the name of science, and in the hope of finding the antidote, McWilliams decides to have the shuttlecraft land. Dowling is hesitant to comply. Mike. Mike, listen to
0: me. Mike, please, you've got to try.
2: Darling. Shuttlecraft 1010. Come in, darling. Darling, this is Colonel McWilliams. I read you. You're holding us up, Mike. We're ready to take off. We'll meet you at No! I can't bring us down. Is it getting worse, Mike?
0: I think so. Awfully weak.
2: What about the others? I don't know, sir.
0: Their, their faces are getting worse.
2: Mike, I uh, I want you to bring the shuttle down. You can't. These plants destroy you. Have compartments like jungle. Horrible. You talk to him, Janet.
0: I, I did. I tried.
2: Well, try again i telling you, waiting for him.
0: Mike, can you hear me? We're all here waiting for you. Janet, Mike, I love you. Please bring the ship down. Come home. Please come home, Mike.
2: Please. I order you to bring that ship down. Do you read me, Captain Dowling? You can't, sir. The, the plants. You bring that ship down, Captain. That's an order. Do you read me? Yes, sir.
1: Downing begins his descent immediately. He crash lands the shuttlecraft six miles off the projected course. The shuttlecraft is banged up and the hull is still sealed shut, but a rescue team is on the way. Major Jennings and Colonel McWilliams arrive at the scene with Janet in the backseat. McWilliams orders the hatch to be pried open, so a member of the rescue team rushes over with a crowbar. The men struggle to get the hatch open when suddenly a small flower rises and shoots its spores at him. Jennings and McWilliams rush over to check on him, and they notice patches of strange flowers near and around the shuttlecraft. They have already spread so fast, and heaven help them, there is a good chance it will rain soon. How much faster will they spread if it rains? Janet watches in horror as one of the flowers shoots its white vapor into the face of an officer. Medics rush over and stretcher him out as McWilliams takes over trying to pry the door open. Back in the car, Janet continues to watch the scene unfold when unbeknownst to her, a flower slowly leans its way into the passenger window. McWilliams shouts for her to get out of the car as the flower expels its white vapor. Janet jumps out the driver's side narrowly avoiding the deadly gas but soon discovers that she's standing in a large patch of these dangerous flowers. She rushes to the ambulance as the flowers shoot off their spores. Back at the shuttlecraft, McWilliams is finally able to pry open the hatch. The lifeless body of Lieutenant Halper falls out onto the ground. His face is dried and covered with strange markings. Major Benedict and Lieutenant Gavin are barely alive and are taken to the ambulance. Finally, Captain Dowling emerges, weakened. More or less okay. He has helped to the ambulance as we see storm clouds approach overhead.
0: Sergeant's looking better. I I think the transfusions are gonna do it. Oh, thank God.
2: And pray. No, Janet, we'll follow in the car.
0: No, I want to stay with Mike. It's not a good idea, Janet. I don't know what the contamination potential is. Well, I don't care. Mike would want you to. Janet, I'll see you at the hospital. Do what they
2: tell you, please. I think he's going to be all right, Janet if we hurry. Get them to the base hospital. Be careful, but be fast.
1: And that's when the story ends for the crew of the space station Adonis. That line about the blood transfusion working and one more brief acknowledgement gives them a happy ending. Well, assuming they don't wake up to a world covered in alien plant life. As the ambulance drives off, it severs the stem of a flower. Colonel McWilliams crouches down for a closer look.
2: Planets. What kind of life? Could a plant, a
1: flower? Ah! <laughs> Janet and McWilliams are bombarded with spores. They run to their car, but the engine won't start. McWilliams opens the hood to discover the engine bay is full of alien flowers. He steps back and realizes the alien flowers have multiplied even more. The sound of thunder reminds us of an approaching storm as McWilliams returns to the car to radio for help.
2: This is Colonel McWilliams calling. It's the storm. Must have started somewhere. This is Jennings, Mac. What happened to all the help? The flamethrowers, They're on their way. Why are you still there, Mac? Can't get out, except maybe on foot. Those plants are all over the engine. Is Janet all right? Yes, she's all right.
0: Better attempt it on foot. Might be 30, 40 minutes before help arrives. How are the men? Sergeant's doing real well. Dowling's coming around
2: faster than we hoped. Blood almost normal. We're going to try it, Nathan.
1: Janet and the Colonel run through patch after patch of alien plants. They run just fast enough to escape the deadly vapor the plants expel. For the first time ever, I found myself saying, Hey, there goes the Tarzan forest again. Every path they take, and around every corner, they discover more and more alien plants. When they reach the final trail, they find it completely covered in alien plants. Janet screams, and we hear loud thunder overhead. McWilliams looks at Janet with a defeated look on his face and says, End of the road. With their fates seemingly sealed, it begins to rain. We see rain pouring all over the alien plants as it starts to rain harder. And we hear what sounds like hundreds of wailing voices. The rain is destroying the alien plants. We see them curl up, topple over, and die as the rain continues. Janet reaches out to the rain and smiles. They're all gone. A simple thing like rain, she says. She asks McWilliams where they came from, to which he responds. I don't know. Another planet. Another time. The two of them look at the sky in admiration as the control voice takes us out. If I were to describe this episode using one word, it would be familiar. First off, there's the unavoidable similarity to the film Day of the Triffids, which was released around the same time this episode had aired. Then there's the trope of an alien invasion being thwarted by something natural to our planet, a la War of the Worlds and signs later on. Watching the crew of a spacecraft struggle with an alien presence on board, called to mind Ridley Scott's Aliens. And there's an episode of Star Trek The Original Series titled This Side of Paradise, where alien flowers expel spores that provide peaceful contentment to those who encounter it. Though tonight's episode had its share of problems, it still came together in the end and delivered a decent story. In The Outer Limits Companion, David J. Scow describes this episode as having technology-based cornball dialogue, and its resolution as a painfully preordained deus ex machina. But I don't mind those things so much, I mean I get it, but that type of dialogue is part of what endears me to science fiction of the day. It harkens back to a time when we looked to the future with dewy-eyed optimism. And even if you're able to piece together the ending beforehand, there's still enjoyment to be had in the journey to get there. I personally thought that the storm raised the stakes and that the rain meant certain doom for the planet instead of the alien flowers. So when Gail Kobe, and Steven McNally are rejoicing in the rain, I was right there with them. Going back to the whole familiarity thing, the ending reminded me of the film The Exterminators of the Year 3000, which has a very similar ending. Ultimately, I filed this one away as an adequate episode, which when you consider what it had to overcome, was pretty darn good. Bonus points for the performances of Gail Kim, Russell Johnson, and Richard Jekyll and respect to Project Unlimited for their always-impressive effects work. Will I watch this episode again? Absolutely. It's not a bad episode. In fact, I think it serves as a perfect example of turning chicken scratch into chicken soup, if you excuse the expression. Comparisons aside, it's an entertaining 50 minutes of television that I recommend checking out. We now go to David J. Scow's The Outer Limits Companion to sharpen the image with some trivia. Leslie Stevens had the following to say about the effects in tonight's episode. We showed the flowers dealing death, and it looked like they were squirting talcum powder and popcorn, and I could see the wires of the plants. I was beside myself. Project Unlimited supplied 150 prop plants, and that still wasn't enough. Enter prop man Dick Rubin, who created extra flowers out of Kleenex. Extra foliage was brought in to cover the World War II barges from the series Combat which was also filming on the MGM backlot at the time. Despite the episode's shortcomings, Specimen Unknown was The Outer Limit's highest rated episode. Leslie Stevens had the following to say, Sometimes you get lucky. A documentary on army ants plays opposite your show, and you get a good rating, and everything's okay. And finally, in a rare spirit of cooperation, CBS's The Twilight Zone, purchased the ship mock-up created originally for the Outer Limits. That mock-up was painted black and used for the episode, Probe 7, Over and Out. So that'll wrap things up for Specimen Unknown. If you'd like to share your thoughts or memories of the show, you can send an email to victor at You can find the show on Twitter by searching at Outer Limits Pod. The show also has an Instagram page, which you can find by searching at the Outer Limits Podcast. You can find recent episodes on most podcatcher apps, but the archive can be found on the mothership that is the Podcast.com. So that's it for me. Join me next time when I cover episode 23 of season 1 titled, Second Chance. Until that time, I am Victor Gamboa, and I now return, Control.